0: Well Magazine, this is Raw Materials Three Ways, and I'm Dan McGinn. I'm an architect and writer, but for RM3, consider me your guide to the fascinating and surprisingly dramatic world where materials and humans intersect. I ate dirt once. Mud, actually. This was in the fall of 2017, when my son Lawson was in first grade. We were on a Sunday hike in the woods after a week of rain. The sky, trees, ground, and everything in between blurred together in shades of muted gray. As we plodded along on the path of wet leaves, it felt like we were inside a Matthew Brady Civil War era photograph. I could tell Lawson was getting bored. I tried to inject some life into the situation by relating a series of thoughtful tidbits on nature and the built environment. He didn't seem that impressed. Eventually, we came to the slick eroded shore of a stream that ambled by about 15 feet below As we stood there, I offered a final factoid about how earthen pathways were actually more durable than one might think. You know, I confidently told him as I began to descend, you can still see traces of the old Oregon Trail in Wyoming. At that point, my foot slipped, I overcompensated, and I tumbled down the slope like a 180-pound sack of soup bones. Seconds before, I was a semi-competent father teaching my son about life on earth. Now I was a primordial mud man rolling around as my son looked on in a mixture of concern and embarrassment, mostly embarrassment. I ate some mud that day, and it changed me. I still remember the gritty mouthfeel of it, and I remember thinking, huh, I thought it would be creamier than this. My son may never recover from seeing his dad transformed, but it got me thinking about the nature of mud and dirt, and how little I knew about something so fundamental. So what is dirt? What is this substance beneath our feet? Turns out there are two kinds of dirt. First, you have organic dirt, which makes up just a wafer-thin top layer of the Earth's crust. Viewed under a microscope, it's a dizzying array of minerals, air, and water, with a variety of microbes shimmying around in the mix. And below this layer of living dirt, you have non-living or inorganic dirt. That's the dirt we're going to dig into today on RM3. In it, the machine of life is less active, but that's okay. Its stability is what has made it useful for humans for thousands of years. We've built with this dirt in the form of mud blocks for shelter. We've stored our wine with this dirt in terracotta vessels. Some of our first scripted words were even written on this dirt on clay tablets nearly 5,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. The trick we humans have been perfecting all this time in order to make dirt more useful involves getting the water out from in between the microscopic bits of stone effectively gluing them back together into a bigger piece of stone. The three things we'll look at today, stoneware, rammed earth, and a unique kind of brick called manganese iron spot have been cleverly transformed from lowly dirt into the building blocks of our lives. Plates we eat from, buildings we inhabit, even art.
1: My name is Rosalie Wild and I work at Heath Ceramics and I do product design. So we're in the San Francisco tile factory, and we're actually in the back where the process starts. So this is where the clay is made.
0: Heath Ceramics, maker of stoneware, dinnerware, and tiles, has gained a cult following over its 70-year existence, and it's easy to understand why. The first time I saw a Heath mug was in architecture school at my studio professor's house, which was like a mini-museum of well-designed objects, The coffee mugs on his kitchen counter were these quirky off-white things with oddly scaled oval handles way down at their bottom. I picked one up and distinctly remember thinking, well, damn, but this is a handsome mug. Sounds crazy, but I kind of identified with it. It was unassuming but serious, a little raw, a little strange. I loved the fact that the makers had exposed just a wee bit of unglazed clay on the rim. The off-white glaze and the textured natural clay rim amplified each other. My professor saw me admiring the mug, pointed at it and said, Edith Heath. Up to that moment, I'd never heard of her.
1: Edith Heath was a really interesting character. She grew up in the Midwest during the Depression.
0: Settling in San Francisco with her husband Brian Heath in 1941, Edith worked as a ceramicist and art teacher. She also took a course on ceramic chemistry at Berkeley. Brian and she spent many weekends driving to clay pits in the area where she would dig out materials and later experiment with them in their kitchen. Access to ceramic equipment was limited, but they converted a treadle-powered sewing machine into a potter's wheel, and even installed a kiln in their first flat.
1: She was invited to be in a show where she was sort of discovered by a store here in San Francisco called Gump's. That was sort of her first break, and she was making dinnerware by hand. like She had a small team that was throwing the pieces one by one. The kind of interest in her work took off, and eventually she was given the opportunity to build a factory in Sausalito in the 50s.
0: Transforming a common material dug from the earth, clay into something joyful, functional, and scaled to the human hand, drove her to create iconic heath designs, many of which are still in production today.
1: She was part of modernists, thinking she wanted to make something that was, it was designed well, it was handmade, but she wanted it to be accessible, and so she was open to using some machinery and making the products because she knew that it wouldn't be viable to sort of make everything by hand if she wanted many people to have access to, to what she was making.
0: Clay was Edith Heath's medium of choice, but it was also her muse. She explored it as a potter, of course, but also as a scientist, an artist, and an activist. She wrote heartfelt poems describing how elements found in the clay like sodium, potassium, calcium, silica, and alumina, transform over eons. Walking around the factory, Rosalie talked about how the company is still committed to using clay from local sources.
1: There's these large sacks of the clay material, which is a kind of a fine powder that's pre-mixed in the, the recipes for the clay bodies, and then they're getting loaded into the mixing machine.
0: Clay is a byproduct of erosion. Over the course of centuries, Mountains slowly break down, sending bits of granite down into the valleys, where they recombine with water and settle. Edith was drawn to the darker clay Brian and she found in Northern California. Its elemental makeup was different, more iron and manganese, and through her kitchen experiments, she knew how to capitalize on its potential.
1: What they discovered is that you know none of the California clays are white like a porcelain china material. She didn't want to make a product that was trying to be something else. So she worked on a recipe that sort of embraced the materials that she had access to and then celebrated that.
0: People have been making pottery out of clay for at least 20,000 years. Fragments from these surprisingly durable early vessels give us clues about what life might have looked like in the waning days of the late Stone Age. When mammoths and saber-toothed tigers still roamed the earth. When heated, clay minerals break down and the water inside becomes keen to escape, driving chemical reactions that lead to vitrification, the point when clay becomes impermeable and highly useful.
1: Before it's been fired, you can shape it into you know this huge range of possible shapes that have different functions but once you've fired clay, it goes through this transformation where no amount of water is going to turn it back to clay. That's when it becomes ceramic. And that's when it has these properties of durability and of strength that make it you know, useful for all these different circumstances.
0: Typically, the higher the firing temperature, the harder the resultant material. At the low end of the spectrum, you have earthenware, which chips quite easily then stoneware, then porcelain, which is super resilient.
1: And you could say that earthenware is low fire and stoneware is higher fire, but because of the unique makeup of our clay, we're actually making a stoneware clay, you know, because it's almost vitrified at a temperature that people typically think would be an earthenware firing temperature.
0: The processes Edith Heath developed stemmed from the deep ethical values she held, from her love of using simple materials from the earth, to her goal of reducing the amount of energy used to transform those materials into useful and beautiful pieces of stoneware.
1: And even today, many of the products that we make and all of the tile that we make, we don't do a bisque firing, which is a pretty common first firing that ceramics go through before they're glazed and then they're fired again. But um, she was even thinking not just about the chemistry and the firing temperature, but also how she could just fire less.
0: After the clay is mixed and the pieces are molded, they're glazed. The colors are most often rifts on timeless earth colors, muted browns, blues, grays, greens, and ochres. Similar to the clay mixes, Glazes are also based on carefully developed recipes and usually include the same kind of components that you'd use to make glass, like metal oxide and silica. Basically, the goal is to permanently fuse a thin layer of glass to the face of the plate or tile or whatever is being produced. It all takes place in one vestibule of the factory. It's
1: mostly large barrels of glaze, so there's lots of blue drums Um, that are 32-gallon drums and then 5-gallon buckets. And these all have glazes that um, are made in Sausalito and sent over here. Um, And then in between all the buckets, there's five glaze booths.
0: There's a bit of uncertainty in the process. Glazes that result in wildly different colors look quite similar in their powdered, pre-fired form. The glazers apply the glazes with expert passes from their spray gun. At
1: each glaze booth is one glazer, and they have a cart that looks kind of like a baking, like a pastry cart.
0: One of my favorite Heath tile lines is called Dual Glaze, in which each rectangular tile has a slightly different proportion of matte and gloss finish. Although the two glazes on each tile are technically the same color, they reflect light in different ways and read as two different colors. They feel like tiny Mark Rothko paintings. When dual-glazed tile is installed on a wall, unpredictable rhythms start happening that add a vibrancy to the overall pattern. The dual-glazed tile was the result of some creative experimentation, combined with a bit of luck. Preserving a spirit of innovation, Heath recognizes when happy accidents happen on the production floor.
1: We're never going for like a Pantone swatch of this precise color because ceramics just doesn't work like that. So we have we have an idea of what we want to achieve but then we also are open to what results happen and so oftentimes it's kind of in between of of trying to push to get somewhere but then also having some unexpected things along the way that end up becoming an inspiration
0: we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor Humboldt Redwood Their FSC-certified Redwood and Douglas fir timbers, boards, and decking are naturally durable and beautiful. They're available in a wide range of sizes and grades, and they're a great choice for your next home project. So check out GetRedwood.com to learn more. One reason I was so drawn to that quirky Heath Studio mug in my professor's house 30 years ago is that it reminded me of the thing I was passionate about, architecture. I made a connection between the function it performed, what it was made of, and the idea that some inspired, talented person designed and made it. I'd been taught that buildings are machines for living. And here was this little white and brown mug with the funky low handle somehow insinuating itself in the conversation. It was like a little clay building for coffee. On a much larger scale, you could think of buildings as vessels, very large mugs for people. The same ancient disruptors that figured out how to shape impervious bowls from clay also figured out how to transform it into sun-dried bricks to make permanent dwellings. The basic idea here was to mix clay with a little water and straw, pack it into a rectangular mold, and then let it cook in the sun until the water naturally evaporated. The dried bricks could then be used to create walls for basic shelter. Although the walls weren't totally impermeable, they were a definite upgrade from walls made of flimsier woven material, or no walls at all. That worked really
2: well in arid climates where you could get a lot of hot sun and dry these bricks and where you didn't have a lot of rainfall which might erode the
0: dried bricks. Tim Hickman is an architect with Substance Architecture in Des Moines, Iowa. He's interested in the materials that make up our buildings, where they're sourced, how they're processed, how they've been used historically, and how they can be used on new buildings in innovative ways.
2: It was discovered that if you put these bricks in a kiln, and originally, you know, a a fire, who knows when it was first discovered, something happened. There was a metamorphosis of that material, and all of a sudden the same basic unit became impervious, Uh, impervious to water, um, much stronger and harder, much more difficult to break. The basic technology of firing brick hasn't really changed since the Romans were firing brick, which is pretty fascinating in a time of such advanced technology that we're still producing something we've been producing for 5,000 years.
0: A brick wall can be seen as a unified whole, but it can also be seen as a community of little pieces, each small enough to be grasped and mortared in place by the hand of a mason. Bonded together, the bricks form a trace of the human effort required to build the wall. Pattern, color, and texture also come into play. No wonder architects and builders have used brick for so long, and why artists have turned to it from time to time. Tim worked with one such artist, Kerry James Marshall, to create a sculpture called A Monumental Journey in Des Moines, Iowa. The 30-foot-tall piece commemorates the 12 African-American lawyers who founded the National Bar Association in Des Moines in 1925. In direct answer to the segregated American Bar Association. Tim's role in the project was to be an architectural liaison to help carry communicate with the builder on how to construct the piece. Interestingly, when the process first started, nobody was talking about it being made of brick.
2: Our office was signed up to basically design the infrastructure needed for the piece. So we thought, oh, we're doing foundations. We're, we're not doing very much. We're just making a home for this piece, and then It took a long time to raise all the money to to solve all the elements to find a site. And in this process of years, Carrie's thoughts about the process evolved and, and the materiality of the piece evolved when we Finalize a location for the piece. We had a, meet, a technical meeting with Carrie, which I thought was going to be a very straightforward meeting. And he started off by saying, I've really been thinking about this piece and I think it needs to be made of masonry. My first thought when he said that was, It's impossible. It seemed um, such an unlikely form to be able to technically figure out how to make this volume. I thought, How in the world? could you make that out of masonry?
0: Picture yourself strolling in a friendly public park in downtown Des Moines. Pleasant tree-lined paths skirt the park with a river rolling by in the distance. Eventually, you find yourself in front of Carrie's sculpture. Two stacked, truncated cones, like two giant Dixie cups, one inverted and balanced precariously over the other. It's actually
2: in shape inspired by African talking drums. Kerry was interested in the fact that these drums used in a lot of parts of Africa, both historically and, and they're still used, they're used as communication device across distances. He liked the idea that communication uh, was part of justice. The upper form is offset and pushed almost to the level where it appears to be ready to tumble off the lower form. When Kerry first was working on developing this form, he had a maquette, and he literally pushed the, the upper volume to the point where it would tumble off the form, and that then he said that's where it needs to be, right at
0: the point of equilibrium. The form is so unlikely, so gravity-defying, that you're drawn closer, and at some point you see that the thing is made of black brick row after row of mottled, metallic-looking, gravity-defying black brick. Like the milestone the sculpture honors, bricks are the result of a transformative process where heat changes the clay into a type of man-made, metamorphic stone. He wanted the piece to be made by people
2: in, in this community, and he wanted there to be a legibility about the fact that it was incremental, because what we were trying to memorialize was incremental. And then as we got into the nature of the brick itself, there's things about the brick and about brick that also have a resonance with the subject of the piece. The piece is about change, and it's about a metamorphosis. And so using a metamorphic kind of materials, it seems totally appropriate.
0: To render Carey's idea for a monumental journey, Tim proposed a type of brick called manganese iron spot. Deep black in color, it's manufactured at Endicott Brick on the outskirts of a sleepy town in southeast Nebraska.
2: More people are employed by the company, the brick company, than live in the town. You know, at one point in Iowa, there were 300 brick manufacturers. So basically, we had clay and we made brick throughout the state. You know, Endicott is on the Little Blue River, and it's a natural depository of a specific kind of clay which is high in iron. When they make brick out of this clay, it makes really strong brick.
0: Before it's fired, the wet clay looks like mud, a dull brown color. A special firing process gives it its rich black color and sheen.
2: The interesting thing that happens with these particular bricks is in the late stages of the firing, what they do is they basically evacuate all of the air from the kiln. And in place of the air, they put natural gas. And the natural gas wants to combust. It's above it, the temperature where it would naturally combust, but there's no oxygen available in the air. So it seeks out the residual moisture and oxygen within the brick itself. And when it oxidizes, which you know, burning is basically oxidation, it brings that manganese to the surface and creates a metallic surface on the brick. And so when you get this brick after firing, it looks sort of like an ingot of some metal that you've never really seen before. When you put it on a large structure like the Monumental Journey, from every angle, it has a slightly different color and reflectivity. And it's this very uh, alive and constantly changing kind of finish.
0: Yeah, it does seem to be really a transformative material. You. Think of it as black brick, but like you're saying, it has a sheen to it. And there are areas that are more matte. And there are areas where it's really dark gray, areas where it's dead black. And then some areas where it's almost just a very, very small hint of like really dark purple in areas. It changes. One
2: of the things I love about it is if you go to the sculpture at at dawn it almost looks golden colored because it takes that uh, the amazing color of the early morning light and reflects it in an entirely different way than it reflects midday sun and then at night Carrie didn't want us to really light the sculpture so the surroundings are lighted and the sculpture is kind of in shade but it takes on an entirely different character from the reflected light of the surroundings. It's constantly changing, it's, it's almost like it has a mood.
0: The normal methods of bricklaying were thrown out the window in the building of a monumental journey. The sculpture is not intended to communicate efficiency and ease of construction. The grace of the curved brick forms belies the intense difficulty of building it. They almost invented
2: a different methodology to lay the brick in this wall than what they typically would do. It was more like an assembly line because they needed somebody to put the mortar in place. Each brick brick had been set. They needed someone to determine that the relationship between that brick and the course below was correct, and then they needed someone to level the brick, and then they had someone that struck all the joints. It was a pretty fascinating kind of ballet of these very, very... These were the most expert masons, uh, going through and creating every course. And it was um, it was pretty fun to watch sort of the assembly line process they had going.
0: So when you have a really special project like this and, and are able to work with uh, someone of the caliber of Carrie James Marshall, I can tell that it really affected you and your uh, care in the project. And then I also can tell that um, the brick manufacturer and the people in the field Also, they seem to really take a real sense of pride in this project.
2: You know, this was a process where we had thousands of options. And so we had to come to him constantly with, there's thousands of bricks. We could have chosen any of those. We put a team together of people that we thought could give Kerry great options. And he was incredibly generous in recognizing the contributions of each of the parts of the team. And when you have a group like that where you're all working together and everybody's contributions are recognized, that motivates people. And so people were excited about working on this project. Um, Our mason, Mark Getzko, went to Endicott and saw the bricks being made and took images of the sculpture and showed the people on the brick line. And one of the interesting responses he got from them was, we usually don't get to see how our bricks are going to be used. So they loved the fact that they could see a project, and they felt that they were invested by crafting these bricks. They were invested in that project.
0: The word brick derives from a Germanic source relating to the word brick. A brick is literally a broken piece of artificial stone small enough to be easily gripped by human hands. Around the same time we humans figured out how to make and stack bricks, some of us figured out what you could call a more monumental approach to making a solid wall, rammed earth. The name says it all. You shovel some earth into a wall form, similar to what you see when you form up a basement foundation wall, and then smash it down with a tamper until all the air in the mix is removed. Then you do it again and again. Eventually, you strip the forms and you're left with a big, beautiful, stone-like wall, comprised of thin, horizontal striations, roughly every 4 to 6 inches. The walls, typically between 18 and 24 inches thick, look a bit like board-formed concrete, but with a lot more nuance, texture, and color variation. I first learned of rammed earth in the early 90s, thanks to the work of Rick Joy, a Tucson-based architect. Joy's houses started showing up in architecture magazines, and they were fundamentally different from the angular, highly articulated buildings that were in fashion at the time. His buildings were deceptively simple and muted structures, bathed in light, completely at ease in their desert environments. Similar to Edith Heath, he was a bit of a disruptor, embracing the inherent beauty and functionality of a raw material that most others had
3: undervalued. Well, I've always been fascinated with um, building culture of place, the spirit of that, And coming from Maine, um, directly from Portland, Maine, to Tucson, I had these brand new eyes for the environment. Everything was completely different. It's very um, fulfilling to think about such a different place and the nuances of lifestyle and then the flora and fauna. I just sort of melted into the place and discovered Rammed Earth as one of the more contemporary building processes. Um, here in the desert, we did really the first uh, exposed rammed earth buildings in the region, and so um, it, I just fell in love with it. Such a poetic um, process, and you'll notice in the works that each one has the uh, the detailing comes from the notion of a ruin. Because when you build with rammed earth, you end with a ruin at one point, and it's just rammed earth and concrete. And so we just carefully detail uh, in such a way as you would insert a new window in an old castle or ruin somehow. What's the process for creating a rammed earth wall? For our buildings, we take this, um, the earth, and it has to be diatomaceous earth it's, uh, with no organic matter at all. And that's um, easy here in, in the Tucson Basin. Um, and to get the color exactly like the soil color that you see all over Tucson, we have to blend three different colors from three different parts of the same quarry that's only about 10 miles away. To then, when you mix the cement in, it's uh, 3%. Uh, it just turns it a dingy gray. So, we have to or add this orange and red ish dirt soil. And so, you just uh, get it a little bit wet, barely wet at all, and you shovel it into the forms about 12 inches deep. And then you compact it down with these pneumatic tampers down to about three inches. So it's really strong. There's no steel in it. And um, we we're relying on friction and weight only. We're sitting next to four of our projects that were done about 20 years ago. And they still look fantastic.
0: Could you talk a little bit about the interaction between light and rammed earth? that seems really important in your work?
3: Well, the the light aspect really is um, on the surface. And I really appreciate coming to a new place and experiencing the sort of dance that the sunlight has on walls. There are some projects where it was intentional to have rammed earth walls that rise from the ground and up to the sky completely uninterrupted, with no overhangs. So it becomes just sun and earth and wall. And it's, uh, it's stunning the way the light plays on all the little bumps and, and rocks and shadows. How do you come up with
0: uh, the soil mixes that work in a particular place? Is that sort of trial and
3: error? No, it's fully engineered. And it's, it's really no different than what you see on highway construction, road base. And um, architects quite often have on their drawings uh, ABC, aggregate base cores. And it's, it's a mix that has the right amount of sand and small aggregate and, um, clay that can be compacted to uh, super strength. And so we, I mean, you see the road base on the highway construction and it's all kind of dingy and gray and we just mix other colors of soil. You know, the earth around here is just different colors in many places. And we had this really great source, um, where there were three, the three colors that we needed coming from nearly the same place. And so the engineering is uh, about that weight and the friction. We end up with like 98% compaction, which is really strong. So um,
0: your Adobe Canyon house, it's a great example of rammed earth. As I look at it, I see four rammed earth forms that kind of form the corners of the house and each of those houses a different function. And then glass separates the forms in a really elegant way. And there are these two huge sets of stainless steel gates that allow to be allow the house to be shut down when it's not occupied. Um, it's really a striking design, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, how rammed earth helped you kind of connect to the land so well and develop that idea.
3: You know, the first one we project we did was the Convent Avenue Studios, and it's built in a pretty significant historic neighborhood that some of the historians believe predates St. Augustine's in Florida. And it's um, um, indigenous people and people coming up from Mexico building with what material they had, which was earth. And so the, that was the great mitigator in the neighborhood. Well, do something that's fairly contemporary, but with rough sawn wood and weathered steel and rammed earth exposed. So, but on the Adobe Canyon House, it's just a, being a good neighbor in nature. You know, I like to, on some of these remote projects, I almost feel like, I don't want to build there, but I know someone else will. So we'll try to do it and do it in the right way. And I almost feel like I'm, when we place the building and assert the man made nature of it rather than pretending it's part of the landscape, um, it's almost like giving a gift to the Dalai Lama and bowing and, and uh, hoping that it, he likes it. Uh, in this case, nature. And that Adobe Canyon house, there's, uh, you can't see another light at night, it's completely remote. And so it's just really rooted in the landscape. The, the, it's the same color as the soil nearby. You know, it's about, you know, a quarter mile from the Mexican border, so it had to be a, a secure house with a lot of foot traffic goes through there. And um, to further protect it, we just put a water fountain outside. And so when people going through, just fill up their water jugs and keep going rather than break in to get water. The interesting thing in the dialogue about the silver patches of the glass and the and the stainless doors—it's really uh, a fitting in the desert, I believe. And it's like when you come over a hill and you see the Rio Grande, for example. It's a silver streak in the desert, and so we just kind of believed in its um, its uh, relationship with that, and um, and it's it can be really striking when the sun hits it and there's a little glare, and it's like any body body of water in the desert. But rammed earth isn't
0: unique to just this region. Different cultures have embraced the technique. In Australia, China, the Mideast, almost anywhere humans have sought to shelter themselves from the harsh conditions of the desert.
3: I was just in Orzazat, Morocco, where they have a pretty strong rammed earth culture there, building culture there. They do it differently, where they build big, massive blocks and use elephants and camels to lift them up with pulleys and set them in the walls rather than the monolithic way we do it so it's a workable um, material in any place in the world where there's no freeze thaw the problem with freeze thaw is the water gets in there and then freezes and then expands and chunks f- fly off the building
0: and you mentioned uh kind of the spirit of sustainability you uh, earlier and i know one of the the great things about rammed earth is that it responds well to, to the uh, temperature shifts from day to night in the desert. Maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that phenomenon.
3: Well, it works really well out in the more pure, raw desert away from the city. Uh, these buildings that we're in today um, are in the city, and um, it's a little bit um, faster thermal lag here because of all the heavy materials absorbing the heat. But out in the desert, we call it um, thermal lag. We get 50 degree temperature swings. And the beauty is that at night, the cool air on the outside is cooling off the walls and that kind of radiates in during the day. And then at night, the heat from the wall that's been, it sort of migrates in and radiates in at night. So it's a really perfect thermal experience. And we have a number of them that are completely off the grid and uh, use evaporative cooling, which is just water over a matrix with air blowing through. So um, we've done a number of super efficient houses with um, rammed earth and evaporative cooling and solar. While rammed earth makes sense in hot, arid
0: regions, for his commissions in non-desert places, Rick has focused on materials and building traditions that are native to those places. For the Sun Valley House in Idaho, he used local small rubble stone. For the Woodstock Vermont Farm, he used local cut stone and wood shingles. For Le Cabinon, a house in the Turks and Caicos Islands north of the Dominican Republic, he took stock of the materials of the island, sand, rock, and water, and created walls of brilliant white concrete. Completed in 2016, the house builds on the same place-specific material philosophy as its desert projects.
3: Well, it's not its not that dissimilar from the thinking with the rammed earth. I mean, it's a different process. The rammed earth is a compaction process and... Um, with no curing, and concrete involves curing with a lot of cement. And it's really of the earth there. I mean, sand and aggregate and water coming from the the island or nearby islands. For me, the formwork um, indicates a certain way of, of building. And you'll notice that the door and window detailing is the same as how we treat those details with rammed earth. When we're done with the concrete, there's a ruin sitting there with holes in it for the doors and windows and we insert them with a small gap to imply you know that it's a ruin that we're inserting new new elements in
0: in stories of creation dirt isn't just the stuff of buildings it's the stuff of life in sumerian mythology humans were created out of water and clay In Greek mythology, Prometheus forged man out of water and dirt. Adam, from the book of Genesis, whose name means something along the lines of dust creature in Hebrew, was fashioned out of soil. Other cultures, Chinese, Egyptian, Hindu, Incan, and dozens more, have strikingly similar origin stories. We come from the soil, and we've gone on to shape civilizations with it, fusing ourselves to the place we inhabit through thoughtful design. So... A shout-out to the thing we take for granted more than anything else on this planet, this Earth. RM3 is a podcast by Dwell Media, your guide to living with good design. Jonna McCone is our editor, and Jenny Shia produces the show. I'm your host, Dan McGinn. Our theme music is by Slog Ralden. Thanks to Rosalie Wilde of Heat Ceramics, Tim Hickman of Substance Architecture, and Rick Joy for contributing to Dirt Three Ways. And thanks again to our sponsor, Humboldt Redwood. Check out dwell.com slash podcast to learn more and see images of what we covered today. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Dwell Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to get your daily design fix. We hope you enjoyed Dirt 3 Ways, and we'll see you next time as we dig into the backstory of another raw material.